story as believers have all across the globe since the rising of the sun hours ago. Would you stir our hearts? Would you transform and do a great work in us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I greet you in the precious name of our Lord Jesus, our risen Savior. What a joy to gather on Easter Sunday morning. Any of you who are guests today, we certainly welcome you as well. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Easter story and the resurrection story as a story of restoration. You know restoration, right? Before and after stories. I mean, perhaps you've looked at an old house before and you've looked across the field and you think, well, though that has good bones. And you think to yourself, oh, that could just be turned and changed and rebuilt and refurbished and restored even to a glory it never had when it was first built. Some of you have been doing this here in our church. Mostly young people do these kinds of projects. Isn't it fun to see the before and the after pictures? Some people look at an old car in the junkyard and they think, that thing needs hauled away. You can get a hundred bucks for that thing without even having the title to salvage yard. And somebody else looks at it and says, that is a classic. It needs to be restored. Restoration. Restoration. There's always a before story. And there's always an after story with restoration, isn't there? Some of you have had opportunity to walk in fields and forests that have been reclaimed. Perhaps strip mining, perhaps floods, perhaps uh, some kind of cataclysmic event uh, with pollution has destroyed a beautiful meadow, a beautiful mountain area. And then they've restored it. They've been able to put it back. They've been able to reseed it, replant it. And you go back and you walk through and you can hardly believe that this was that spot it has been restored. There's a before story and there's an after story. I don't know if you've thought about the Easter story as a story of restoration. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about restoration. In fact, when you stop and think about it, when we turn in our New Testaments, the very essence of the ministry of Christ in his earthly ministry recorded for us in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is a story of restoration. It's filled with before and after stories, restoration stories. I mean, let's just say that we wanted to kind of just thumb through the the text of the gospels and get kind of a bird's eye view of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And to do that, let's grab the gospel of Mark, for example. You don't have to turn there. Just stay with me for this exercise. So we open to the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest of the Gospel accounts. Some people call it the Reader's Digest condensed version of the Gospel. It's easy to read, yet Mark captures incredible detail. And you know you can't read very long and you're going to find before and after stories. Stories of restoration. I mean, early in Mark, we have that incredible scene, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, where Jesus and his disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. They come across the sea. You can go there today. There's a, a steep embankment there on the side of the, on the shoreline. The keel of their boat hits the sand. The disciples jump out, pull the boat up on the shore, and all of a sudden, the most hair-raising, screeching, heart-pounding wails and screams from above them on the bluffs coming down at them, and they look up, and there's a naked, crazy man 
who's got chains dangling from his arms and he's got birds living in his beard and he's just wild. It's a true story. Mark chapter 5. Jesus is standing there. It doesn't take long into the story. You realize that the man is possessed by demons. He's out of his ever-loving mind. He comes running down in front of Jesus. The demons recognize Jesus in short order. Jesus casts the demons out of the man into the swine. The swines go crazy, hundreds of pigs, and they run off the steep embankment and drown in the sea. And in just a few paragraphs into the story, the man is sitting there clothed and in his right mind. There's a before story, and there's an after story, and there's restoration I mean, we don't know where that man came from. We don't know, we don't know how that man opened up his life to demons. We don't know if he entered into some form of mental illness. We don't know if he made poor choices and he got into things he should have never gotten into in the world of darkness. But somehow, thousands of demons, a legion of demons possessed this man. He left his home, he left his family, he lived in the tombs among dead bones. He would wail and shriek. The community tried to shut him down, to bind him with chains even. He shattered the chains. He had superhuman power with these demons in him. There's a before story. And then one day, he encounters Jesus. And with a word, our Lord Jesus casts out the demons and restores him. And there's an after story. You know, um, we don't really have much of the after story. The man wanted to run and get in the boat with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, you just go home and tell everybody what great things God has done for you. Now, there's a story I'd like to see in heaven someday on a big screen. Gabriel, get the clicker. Turn that one on about David and Goliath. I got to see that one again. But then would you fast forward there to Jesus along the Sea of Galilee, the crazy man at Gadaria, and would you show me the part where he goes up on his porch and he opens the door and he returns to his family? I want to see that part. It wasn't in the Bible. You see, there's a before story and there's an after story and there's restoration and it's what the ministry of Jesus Christ was all about. I mean, in that same passage, you just keep reading and you see it over and over and over before, after, restoration. Jesus is in a crowd of people. There's a man, an important man runs up to him and says, my daughter's dying. You need to come right now. He turns, starts walking through the crowd. The crowd is pressing in on him. His disciples are around him and somebody touches him. And Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples say, are you kidding me? Everybody's touching you right now. We're in the middle of a crowd. He turns around and there's the most precious, pitiful lady there in the middle of the crowd. The Bible tells us she had an issue of blood for 12 years, I think it is. 12 years. The accounts of the gospel tell us that she spent all of her savings accounts trying to find relief from this sickness, this issue of blood. What a disgrace. What a a difficulty. Our Lord turns and heals her, restores her to instant wholeness. There's a before story and there's an after story. And there's restoration. They turn and they head the way to the man's house where the little girl, that's where they were heading. They find the neighborhood is wailing. A little girl's died now. Of course they're wailing. A little girl dead. It's pitiful. Jesus says, 
Move out of the way. Let me in there. She's just sleeping. Little girl, get up. The people laughed at him, but they didn't laugh when she got up and when he said, give her something to eat. There's a before story. There's an after story. There's restoration. And the gospel's filled with it. That's what Jesus is all about. He's all about restoration. Taking things that are broken, things that are falling apart. Ah, he excels. And this morning, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26 for the beginning of our sermon. We're actually going to turn in our Bibles quite a bit this morning before we're done. I hope that doesn't bother you and that you'll enjoy it. If it, if it's something you don't enjoy doing, just listen closely. If you have your notes and you want to follow along, you might find that helpful. I want to suggest to you this morning that embedded in the Easter story, Embedded in the Easter story is one of the most remarkable before and after stories in all of the Bible, and it might catch you by surprise. It has everything to do with the restoration of the Apostle Peter in the middle of spiritual failure. Uh, He was with Jesus for three years. I don't know if you remember that early in the earthly ministry of our Lord, he was walking along the Sea of Galilee and he said to these fishermen, hey, come and follow me. They came and followed him. Peter was a fisherman. He comes. He was the biggest, strongest, toughest of all the disciples. He had a little bit of an issue that he could talk faster than he could think. But he was a leader, a natural born leader. Jesus pulled him in and for three years he was discipled by the Lord Jesus. For three years he ministered along with the Lord Jesus. The Lord even gave the disciples power that they could heal during his earthly ministry. Peter experienced so much of the presence of Christ right there. Wouldn't you love to spend three years with Jesus in person on the earth, traveling with him, walking, talking, living together, learning watching him minister to the crowds, and there's Peter. I want to suggest to you, though, that Peter enters into a season in his life that is an absolute spiritual disaster. We're going to begin by, as it were, pulling back the curtains and looking at scene one, and it is Peter's life in past profile. The past profile of Peter's life has to be defined by by failure and spiritual collapse. Failure and spiritual collapse. In Matthew 26, we can, we can open and close the curtains on these scenes that are taking place in rapid fire succession going into the cross. So we're beginning this morning on resurrection morning, we're beginning backing up to Good Friday. This is when the wheels come off of Peter's spiritual life. By the way, I would imagine this morning there's people here, the wheels have come off your spiritual life. Maybe the wheels have come off your whole life. There's a before story here, and there's an after story and I'm going to tell you this morning, the restoration is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's found at his empty tomb, in his resurrection power. There's before stories and after stories all over this room, I'm telling you. Let's look at Peter specifically this morning. It happens kind of subtly for Peter. We're in Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, and in your mind's eye, you can recall them being up in the upper room for the Passover feast together. This is the night on which our Lord is going to be betrayed. Judas is going to kiss him on the cheek here. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, in that sign of betrayal. Before that, he sent his disciples to prepare an upper room. There he has the last meal. There he institutes the Lord's Supper. That is at verse 26 of Matthew 26. 
There he tells them that he is going to go, he's going to give up his life, tells them that this is his blood, this new covenant in his blood. The old covenant's going to end, there's going to be a whole new chapter. There's a before and there's an after right here in the Lord's Supper. There's an old covenant, but there's a new covenant, praise God, in Christ. They finished their Passover meal. He's taken the bread and broken it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. He's taken the cup and they've drunk together, drank, drank, drunk, drank and drank it together. And they, they have partaken together of this drink. And he tells them, I'm telling you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day, that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. There's a before and there's an after. Immediately then it says in verse 30, let your eyes go there to Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. Immediately then it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Are you stopping? You think to yourself, are you kidding me? They have just been at the Passover meal together. He has just broken bread. He has just shared the cup with them. He has just talked about the institution of a new covenant. Of course, their minds aren't picking up on all of this. He has told them repeatedly, we're going to Jerusalem. There, I'm giving up my body. There, I am going to be crucified. But in three days, according to the scripture, I'll rise again. And he tells them, and tonight, all of you will fall away this night because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's what it says in the Old Testament. For after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answers him. And he says, this is Peter. Though they all fall away, Lord, on account of you, I will never fall away. Good intention. Immediate response, Jesus says to him, truly I say to you this very night, before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Me too, me too, me too. Peter, you're not listening. You're boasting. And the first thing we see as the wheels begin to fall off of Peter's spiritual cart and he begins to implode spiritually and he begins to have the most disastrous night that of failure that anybody could ever have. We recognize that it begins because he's not listening. He's boasting. He's in his own strength and he's not listening. Rather than listening, he's boasting. We shut the curtains and open them right back up again, and as soon as Jesus is done there, he points at Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and he says, you three, come with me. I want to go up to Gethsemane and pray. Gethsemane means oil press. There was evidently a path and a grove of, of olive trees in an area that was secluded. It was nighttime, and our Lord knows what's coming this, this night. And our Lord wants to go up and pray, and he wants his, those three that he was very close to, Peter, James, and John, come with me and let's pray. I need some strength of encouragement and fellowship and brothers nearby. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, verse 36, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. You see, you got to understand what's happening here. This is our Lord Jesus in his humanity combined with his deity. He's all God. He's all man. He knows what's coming that night. He knows that there's going to be a a time where he's going to get his flesh nearly beaten off of him. He's going to come within an inch of his life of being beaten to death in just a few short hours. He's going to be beaten with rods. He's going to have a crown of thorns mashed down on his head. He knows he's going to carry the cross along the way of suffering. He knows that they're going to spread him out on these timbers and they're going to put nails through his hands and through his feet. And he's asking God to please. In his humanity, he knows it's going to be unbearable. Please, if there could be another way that I would not have to drink from this cup. But you need to understand it's even more than the physical suffering. He knows that something is going to happen here. That in the plan of God, he's on his way to the cross to be the sacrificial lamb for, listen to me, for the sins of the world. So in about a three-hour window on the cross, our Lord, and he was the only possible person who could do this, he was specifically designed for this. It's why God became flesh, because no human could do it on their own. You see, in the eyes and mind of a holy God, there is a spiritual law of the universe, and it is that the wages of sin is death. Sin always demands death. And so he sent Jesus, who is the only one who could take the sin of the world upon himself, die for it, and complete that task all in three hours. You see, if we died for our own sin, we would suffer for all of eternity. But God allowed Christ to be able to do this in some way that the sin of the world would be upon him and he would adequately and sufficiently pay the penalty in the eyes of a holy just God for all the sins of the world. This is a pretty nice looking audience here today and I would think we're not that bad as sinners but I'm going to tell you I'll bet there's a there's bad sin represented here today. I mean all of us are lost in our sin and our trespasses the Bible says. But how many of us have the things tucked in the recesses of our hearts and our minds that we want no one to know about the horrible terrible things that have been done in the past the hatred and the anger the vitriol the horrible sin that we've been a part of in our lifetime, not to speak of just our positional sinfulness as being in Adam before a holy God. You see, all of our sin is going to be stacked upon Jesus. All the sin of all the people past before the cross, all of the sin of all the people forward, including us, all of that sin in the mind of God, all the sin that everybody ever committed would be piled onto Jesus. All of the horrible sins of all the world would be piled at that focal point on Jesus. And so the horrible sin of the rapist and the child molester and the, and the, The drug addicts who in a crazy frenzy in the middle of the night break into a country farmhouse and duct tape an old 80-year-old woman to a chair and bash her head in with a ball-peen hammer to steal a few trinkets to try to get money for their drugs. All that sin is piled on Jesus as though he did it. Every sin you could ever think of, of all people, 
And what's going to happen when all that sin is piled on Jesus? He's going to be guilty of that sin, and God cannot look at sin, and he will turn away from his own son, and so God turns his back on God. Go figure. The first member of the Godhead, God the Father, will turn his back on the second member of the Godhead, God the Son. And it will be, in the mind of God, an adequate sacrifice. It will be done. And that's why when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that the plan of God in paying the penalty for the sins of the world was accomplished. We have no idea of what this really entailed in the agony of our Lord Jesus. And so the physical passion of our Lord was minuscule compared to the spiritual overwhelming weight of the sins of the world that were put upon him. And so he lies on his face in the garden of Gethsemane and he has his fingernails clawing in the dirt and he sweat drops of blood. Evidently the capillaries around his forehead broke and burst in the agony of it all. And he's praying and he says, Peter, James, John, would you pray with me? I need, I need you right now. And he gets up and he walks over and they're sleeping. And he does this three times. Verse 43, he says finally in verse 42, the second time, my father, if, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping. Verse 43, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went, away and prayed for the third time saying the same words again and then he came to his disciples and he said to them sleep and take your rest later on see the hour is at hand the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners rise let us be going see my betrayers so Peter is supposed to be praying but he's sleeping he should have been listening and he was boasting he should have been praying but he was sleeping and the third scene opens up on the set and we see immediately as they leave the garden of Gethsemane they're evidently at a spot or a position where they could look across and they could see the temple guards coming with the Sanhedrin and the high priest and those that are with him and Judas is with them and they can see the torches this is now in the middle of the night and they're coming and there it is and while he was still speaking verse 47 Judas came one of the twelve and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people now the betrayer had given them a sign saying the one I kiss is the man sees him and he came up to Jesus at once and he said greetings rabbi and he kissed him and Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Just a few hours before, Judas had been sharing bread with Jesus in the stew there at the table at the Passover, partaking together. Jesus had actually pointed out to them that the one he was sharing bread with and sopping bread with right then is the one the disciples had sat around the table when he said, one of you will deny me. Is it I? Is it I? Never me, Lord, never me. It was Judas He was a snake in the grass, a betrayer. He comes and he kisses Jesus. They grab a hold of Jesus because they hate him. Yeah, a lot of reason to hate, isn't there? This is the one who with a word healed a precious lady of an issue of blood after 12 years. This is the one who gave a little girl back to her mommy and her daddy. This is the one who could speak a word and break bread and fish and feed 5,000 people When there was no resource, this is the one who could look at a crazy man bound in chains and say, get dressed, get in your right mind and go back home to your family. Yes, this is the one we hate. This is the one we would kill. Yes, indeed. And what happens? They lay heavy hands on him. And what happens? 
Behold, one of those who were with Jesus, verse 51, stretched, stretched out his hand. He drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. It was Peter. We know from parallel accounts in the Gospels. Peter, the fisherman, grabs his short sword, starts flailing away. Caiaphas, the servant of the high priest, ducks and smacks the sword off the side of his head, shears his ear. Evidently, it falls in the dirt. I always picture Jesus picking up because we know from other accounts that Jesus healed him. I think he blew it off. (sighs) Sticks it back on. I mean, can you imagine the blindness of a man who's laying heavy hands on Jesus and a guy whacks a guy's ear off and the guy bends over, picks it up and sticks it instantaneously and completely healed back on the guy's head and you still want to lay heavy hands on that guy? You don't know who you're messing with. Oh, Peter, he's just sitting there flailing away at the air because he didn't have ears to hear when he was, should have been listening, he was boasting, when he should have been praying, he was sleeping. And now, rather than trusting the plan of God to unflow, unfold, he was doubting. Listen, he was an interference to the plan of God in Jesus' life. Like before, Peter's the one that told him that'll never happen. And Jesus looked at him and said, get thee behind me, Satan. The one who would interfere in the accomplishment of the will of God in your life is not your friend. And Peter is trying to interfere in the will of God for Jesus. And he's flailing away with his sword. And and instead of trusting the Lord and trusting the words of Jesus, he's doubting. It says then after that, they take Jesus away that the scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 54, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. That's a theme that's going to come back up again later. And then notice the final phrase of verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Fourthly, rather than standing with Jesus, he's running. Oh Lord, I'll never leave you. If everybody else leaves you, I'll be there. I'll die for you, he said, boasting. And now he's running, hightailing it, his big belly flapping as he runs down the mountain, getting out of the way. Let somebody grab a hold of him. And there he is, rather than standing, he's running. But we haven't got to the worst part yet. This spiritual implosion that's taking place in slow motion this evening. I mean, he's been with the Lord for three years. He's seen it all. He's heard it all. He knows. He even himself said, Lord, to whom else would I turn? And now everything's falling apart. He's spiritually imploding. His, his profile is that of failure. They take Jesus then, verses 57 through 68. We'll not review those. You know the story quite well. They take him down. They have a kangaroo court. They pay guys. They bribe guys off the street to make up lies as a witness against Jesus. They finally come up. They couldn't even find people to do that at first. They finally get somebody to say, well, I heard him say that he would tear down the temple and build it in three days. That's blasphemy. You can't tear down the temple. That's, that's just wrong. It's God's temple. You can't tear it down. That's blasphemy. Kill him, kill him. And so they beat Jesus. They blindfold him. They hit him with rods. They put a crown of thorn on him, thorns on him. 
They say he deserves death. Verse 67, then they spit in his face. They struck him. Someone slapped him. Prophesy to us, Christ, prophesy. And the very next verse, 69, says, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Now, isn't it interesting that at verse 56, it says all the disciples left him and fled. That include Peter, included Peter. By the time we get to verse 68, 69, Peter is sitting outside in the courtyard. So we're going to give him a little bit of credit for circling around. All the other guys have gone and and dived under rocks and hiding in vineyards or something somewhere in the middle of the night, fearing for their lives. And Peter wants to come and he wants to see what he's going to see. Now begins a sequence that is the most pitiful failure of Peter's life. So Peter's sitting outside in the courtyard trying to pick up on what they're doing with Jesus. And a servant girl, it says in verse 69, came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. That is pretty intimidating, isn't it? A little girl. You were with Jesus. You were with Jesus. No, I wasn't. Immediately, according to the account that Matthew gives us, He says, I don't know what you mean, verse 71. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, hey, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. I swear on my mother's grave, on the gold in my mother's teeth. I don't know the man. Lord, if all else, all abandon you, not me. Lord, I'll die for you tonight, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. We've got two down. Let's look at the third. He denied it again with an oath. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your account. Your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. I swear by the gods, I don't know him. And he began to call down curses on himself. Let a lightning bolt from heaven strike me dead if I know this guy. Are you kidding me, Peter? Come on. Three years. A few hours ago, you were at the upper room table with him. A few hours ago, you said you would die for him. And you have had complete, utter implosion in your life now spiritually. And so rather than blessing... You were with Jesus. You better believe I was with Jesus. I saw him walk on water. In fact, I walked on water for about 30 seconds. You try that. I was there when he fed the thousands of people with a few loaves and fishes. I was there when the crazy man got straightened out and got dressed. It was amazing. In fact, I gave him my coat. You better believe I was with Jesus. And I'm staying with Jesus no matter what. I have nowhere else to be. No. I swear I don't know the guy. I swear on my mother's grave. Let lightning bolts strike me dead. Swear, blankety blanket. I don't know this guy. An amazing thing happened. And immediately the rooster crows and Peter remembered verse 75, the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. 
We won't turn there, but Luke gives us this account in Luke chapter 22 that evidently the proximity of where Peter was in this outer court, there was some kind of a hallway or corridor in the dark shadows and with the flames of the fire that down this dark corridor was where they were holding Jesus. And it says immediately when the rooster crowed, Luke gives us the account that Peter looked up and he looked down and he looked and he and Jesus had immediate eye contact. Can you imagine that moment? And he wept bitterly, I guess so. He is a failure. It's the before. It's the before story. Anybody relate to that? Anybody got a before story that they would just as soon not talk about? Anybody have a before story that they would love to just think it could go away somehow? Well, let's close the curtains and then we open them up again and we must move along because now we're going to look at Peter's spiritual restoration. We've looked at his past profile. It's defined by failure and spiritual collapse. We're now going to look at his spiritual restoration and it's defined by faith and spiritual conviction. Something's going to happen here and his faith is going to be restored. What is that? And now I want to show you something that I wonder if you've ever noticed before. I wonder if you realize how embedded in the resurrection story Peter is. We have in our gospel accounts, these, each of them give a resurrection account. And so let's thumb in our Bibles and let's just look at the resurrection account. And I want you to notice how Peter is singled out from the rest of the disciples. Is it any wonder? Let's turn to Mark's account, for example, in Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, verse 7. Take a look. Mark 16. This is, this is Mark's account. The Sabbath is past. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, they bring spices. They don't know how they're going to roll the stone away. While they're saying to one another, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? They look up and they see that the stone has already been rolled back. It was a very large stone. Verse 5 of Mark 16, they're entering the tomb. They actually, the ladies actually enter the tomb. And there's this young man, it's an angel, sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And now look at the next sentence. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Isn't that interesting? So this angel that's sitting in the tomb, tomb, there were two of them, they received information from headquarters that when you, hey, you go over there, you run down to Jerusalem, you go roll the stone back. I don't know if they did it or it just happened. The earth was quaking somewhere in there. The stone is rolled back, this heavy stone. Jesus has exited the tomb with complete bodily resurrection, completely restored to life, but in a resurrection body. And these two angels are assigned to sit there. Now you sit there because his disciples are going to come around. And I want you to tell them, go tell the disciples. The ladies are going to come around. Go tell the disciples. And then he said, and make sure you say, and Peter. Isn't that interesting? And Peter. I, I don't know if I ever really noticed that before. Let's go to Luke's account. Luke chapter 24. Luke's account. Luke chapter 24. Take a look. It's very interesting. 
This is Luke's account of the resurrection. Now remember, Luke was not an eyewitness. He was a researcher. And so he compiled information from interviews of people. He was a historian. And he wrote down a very careful account by interviewing eyewitnesses. He gives his account. Same thing. The men are there. Their faces are to the ground. Pastor Everett already read this account to us. And remember verse 6, he says, how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day. Do you remember that he told you all of this? They did not have ears to hear. And then they remembered his words, verse 8. And returning from the tomb, the ladies told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman, women with them who told them told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now look at verse 12. But Peter rose. He had John with him, but Peter says, can you imagine what's going through Peter's mind at this time? Can you imagine what kind of three or four days Peter has been living through? The last time he saw his Lord Jesus, he made eye contact with him, and then he saw him take him off the cross, I would assume. He saw his dead body. And he knew that everything ended in failure and disaster and spiritual implosion. It was terrible. And now the word keeps coming to him. Peter, Jesus is risen from the dead. Peter, Jesus is risen from the dead. And so he gets up and he runs to the tomb and he wants to see it for himself. The very next story in Luke chapter 24 is the story of the two disciples that are, we don't know their names, they're walking on the road to Emmaus. It was after, it was on the eve of the resurrection day. They're walking and they're marveling at the events of all that Jerusalem was buzzing about. And Jesus joins them. Remember that story? It's right there. He walks with them and he, he shrouds his identity and he listens. And, and then he begins to teach them from the Old Testament scriptures Moses and the prophets, and he begins to unfold for them all of the prophecies about how the things that they had seen that day had to come to be. Now look at, look at Luke chapter 24 and verse 34. At the end of that day, they finally returned to Jerusalem, they did, and they went, those two disciples, after Jesus had revealed himself to them on the road to Emmaus finally, they realized they were actually talking with Jesus and he was the one who was teaching them. And they returned to Jerusalem and they found, verse 33, they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. There it is. That's Peter. That's Peter. Simon Peter. So the angel says to the ladies, go tell the disciples and Peter. The men on the road to to Emmaus found out from Jesus himself, he already told them, I've already talked to Peter. In fact, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where we have this succinct survey of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 6, 1 through 7 and 8, right in there. If you don't want to turn, just listen closely. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthian believers. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. 
This is the gospel which saves us that God sent his son to be the savior of the world. He took our sin to the cross, was buried according to the scriptures. The third day rose again according to the scriptures. And by putting our faith and trust in him, he pays the penalty for our sin. That is the only plan of salvation. Look what he says. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The apostle Paul says he had these visions. God revealed to him truth. And this is the most important thing that I've written to you, he says. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Look at that. That's Peter. Simon, Cephas, Peter. Same guy. I take it. I mean, we know from John's gospel in chapter 20 that the disciples were gathered together except for Thomas in the upper room and that Jesus came and appeared to them, revealed himself to them after the resurrection. They could hardly believe it. Later, he lets Thomas touch his hands and his side. Peter would have been a part of that group. But I also am assuming, putting these concepts together, that somewhere along the line, Jesus and Peter had a face-to-face. Now, we know that they did on the shore in John 21 Somewhere in there, and we don't know exactly what his motive was in John 21, after Jesus revealed himself to the disciples in the upper room where they were hiding, and they saw him in his resurrection body. I don't know if Peter was still confused or if he just needed to clear his mind. Sometimes when a man needs to clear his mind, he says this, I'm going fishing. That's what Peter said, I'm going fishing. But you know, they don't need to do that every weekend. But Peter needed to clear his mind. And so, and so Peter goes fishing. The other disciples say, well, I'm going with you. They look up and there's somebody on the shore. Got a little fire going, frying some fish. This is John 21. And Mark looks over, or, or John looks over and says, Peter, that's Jesus. Peter grabs his jacket, jumps in the water and runs over to Jesus. Jesus says, go get some fish. Bring some more fish. He already had a couple fish on the fire. Get some more fish. He's, the count there tells us there's 153 fish in the net. And they're standing there frying fish on the shore and Jesus is connecting with his disciples. Imagine the renewal of relationship. You see, there's a before story and there's an after story. He looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Well, that's an interesting account there and there's a lot to it. Part of what he says there, Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Was he talking about his fishing gear and equipment and fish? Or was he talking about the other disciples who Peter said, even if they all abandon you, I will stand with you. Maybe Jesus was putting his finger on that with Peter saying, are you sure you love me more than these? But in the process there, they are restored. And I take it that he even met with him separately from that. Let's hear Peter's own testimony 30 years later. When he writes 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, in his introduction, he writes this. I wrote it in your notes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Do you think those aren't loaded words with Peter? According to his great mercy, I am the one who cursed his name. I am the one who said over my mama's dead body, I don't know the guy. 
but according to his mercy, he had me run into the empty tomb. According to his mercy, he met with me. According to his mercy, he included me on that shoreline. He, he renewed my faith and my trust, and he showed me that he loves me. According to his mercy. Mercy means not receiving what you do deserve. And Peter, of all people, realized he had not received what he did deserve. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through, there it is, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You want to know what it is that put the wheels back on Peter's wagon spiritually? What is it that reversed the spiritual failure of his life? It was the empty tomb. It was the face-to-face encounter. It was being with the resurrected Christ, the reality that his faith was sight, and this is for real, and the gospel is for real. There it is, his restoration story. We have a before story. We have a restoration process. Let's open the curtain on the final set. It won't take us long to look at it because God in his providence gave us of all people in the book of Acts, and I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2 now, our final spot. And in Acts chapter 2, of all people, God gave us verbatim the actual words out of Peter's mouth as he preached to masses of people. So we can open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, And this one who absolutely failed in his before story, we can look at the after story and we can examine his very words. We can know what he said and how he said it. And the first thing I want you to see is that he made direct confrontation with the crowds about the crucifixion of Christ. This is Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1 is when the Holy Spirit comes. Christ has ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them. Peter begins to preach when they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They're in Jerusalem. There's masses of people. It's the middle of the day. One of the things that happened through the power of the Holy Spirit is that all of the disciples were able immediately to speak languages that they never learned before. You can read about it. It's remarkable. When the Holy Spirit came upon them in this metropolis, urban, trade center of the world where there were thousands of people in one place, the epicenter of the world at that time. It's the middle of the day. All these people are there. A crowd is drawn. And all of the disciples can begin to speak in different languages. And they can speak in Persian and whatever language, German and Russian and Chinese and Japanese. And they can speak all the languages that were present in the world that day. And so they began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, they were, and somebody says, they're drunk. And he, Peter stands up and says, we're not drunk. This is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look what he says. He begins to show them from the Old Testament, the book of Joel, that this is the outpouring that Joel talked about. And then in verse 22 of chapter 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified him and killed him. The very people in Jerusalem that day that he's preaching to would have been part of the crowds that were screaming for Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Peter, who was afraid of a little girl, is now standing in the middle of the city in the face of the people who crucified Jesus, preaching to them saying, you crucified him. And he doesn't care what they think. 
The first thing he does is he, he authenticates his faith and he shows his fearlessness. Peter's powerful testimony of preaching for the rest of his life is defined by fearlessness and spiritual courage. It's defined by fearlessness and spiritual courage. And letter A, direct confrontation. He makes direct confrontation with the very people who crucified Jesus. And he says, you did this. And he has no fear whatsoever. Direct confrontation. He goes on to preach then from Psalm 16. It's about God's Holy One not being decaying in the grave. And he proves to them from the Scripture that Jesus rose from the dead. And that it wasn't talking about David, it was talking about Jesus. That's scriptural verification. Scriptural verification. I'll show you who Jesus is. Show me your Old Testament. He unfolds through the Old Testament, picking it up with verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. You can go dig David up. He's there. That Old Testament wasn't talking about your father David. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Listen, just like the scriptures say, the prophet said, Jesus' body did not rot in the grave, he rose again the third day. So he makes direct confrontation with the crowds about the crucifixion. He immediately goes with verification from Scripture about the resurrection of Christ. And then thirdly, he publicly identifies, public identification with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this one who denied his Lord has been restored. Now in the after story, he's standing in front of everybody and he says, I was an eyewitness. Do you see that? This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. He says it again in 3.6. He says it in 3.15. He says it in chapter 4, verse 13, in all of these different settings. So he's in public with people who are even going to put him in prison, and he says, you are with Jesus? Absolutely, I was with Jesus. I was an eyewitness, and I'm telling you, he transformed my life. Finally, He communicates to them in a call for salvation. Back to chapter 2, verse 38. Look what it says. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There he says it again. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do you do with this Jesus who rose from the dead? You repent of your sins because he went to the cross and carried your sin there. And you put your faith and trust in him and you become saved from your sin. You become identified with Christ. Why would we ever be ashamed of this Jesus? Why would it not be our greatest, our greatest delight and joy to identify with Christ? There's a before and there's an after and there was a restoration. Don't you see it in Peter? I wonder if there's some people here who are in there before and they need restored and you haven't lived out the after story yet. What does this testimony of transformation remind us of? First of all, it reminds us that if Peter can fail, anyone can fail. If it is possible 
for Peter to fail, it is possible for anyone to implode spiritually. I wonder if we have spiritual implosions present today. Some people who have a before and they haven't lived out the after and you haven't let Christ restore you. You run to the cross. You acknowledge the risen Savior. It will change everything about you. When you have a confidence in Christ, that he is a resurrected Christ, the word is true. The message is true. I think that the transformation of Peter in his before and after story is evidence enough, really. It's one of the most convincing evidences of the reality of the message of who Christ is. Secondly, the cross and the resurrection are powerfully intertwined for salvation and restoration. Romans 10.9 says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, you cannot be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what will begin to transform your life because it, it authenticates the message. For believers, maybe some of you are believers in Christ, but you've imploded spiritually. You have a before and after situation going on here right now and you need, you need restoration. Colossians 3 said, for those of you who are in Christ through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, take on this mind of Christ. Let him restore you. Let him renew you. If you then be resurrected with Christ, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You can identify with the resurrection of Christ and its spiritual renewal. You don't have to live in the before. You can move into the after. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, number three, is the anchor point of our faith. You see, if he didn't rise from the dead, he's not who he said he is. But he did, and it was the, it was the key to the, to the renewal and transformation of Peter's life. Before and after. Where are you in the timeline of your story, before or after? Will you bow your head with me, please? Just remain seated. As you bow your head, where are you in your spiritual journey? Have your wheels come off? Have you imploded like Peter? You need an encounter at the cross and following the cross with the resurrected Christ. He's in the restoration business. Admit your sinfulness. Believe and follow Christ and let him restore you and walk with you and give you newness of life. For those who are in Christ Jesus, all things become new. Father, would you challenge our hearts, open our minds today. Thank you for the marvelous testimony of Peter. And though he was a story of failure, he experienced the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the boldness of his testimony.